Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast from Grace Anglican Church of Grove City, Pennsylvania. Our goal in every sermon is to proclaim the bold truth of the Word of God, especially the undiluted grace of Jesus Christ. If you want to learn more about our church, check out our website at graceanglicanonline.com. Well, good evening. It's good to be with you. And uh, I'm very grateful to Ethan and Monique for inviting us to come. Uh, it's always a bit risky with bishops, you know. Uh, you never know what they might say and how much cleanup you're going to have to do afterwards. And um, Ethan, I promise I will leave as little mess as possible. Okay. It's also a great joy for me to be here uh, in Grove City. I had a granddaughter graduate from here, and uh, so it sort of... Fair amount of time ago, so I'm not exactly sure which year, but uh, she remembers Grove City fondly, and I think she even remembers Ethan fondly, which is even more astonishing. And uh, <laughs> anyway, it's also wonderful to share in this confirmation service, and I'm so thrilled to have met the candidates and the uh, ones being received earlier. And uh, what a privilege it is for me to be part of this. Uh, and they're standing up and owning their faith themselves. I mean, to me, that's just a wonderful, wonderful privilege. And I'm glad to be able to share it with you. And now I'm going to preach, and I want to pray that God will use what I have to say for his glory and for our growth. Heavenly Father, I thank you and I bless you for your word, for your spirit, and for this opportunity we have to worship you. And I pray, Lord God, as we gather around your word, that you would speak to us through it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me just a quick word about amens. Um, I grew up Baptist, and amens are far different from Anglican amens. Anglican amens are kind of coughs. (coughs) Amen. Where I grew up, an amen means I agree. Amen? Amen. Mm. Okay, so that's what I'm looking for. When I see an amen anywhere, I want it with some mm. <laughs> Amen? Amen. We got it. Okay. Do any of you ever feel overwhelmed by life? Do we get some nods? Amen? I tell, oh, yes. I heard some amen, sir. Do you ever get to that place where it seems that there's just too much going on and all you want to do is hide? Mm-hmm. Do you sometimes feel that you're on a treadmill? and you can't find the off button, and it's going faster and faster? Do you sometimes wonder whether even God can keep up with your schedule? (laughs) Do we hear an amen? Amen. Mm. We've all been there. You know, there are times when life does seem overwhelming. And these past two weeks have been one of those times for the Mins family. Two weeks ago, we heard that our son-in-law Tom, husband to our eldest daughter Sarah, had been in a serious car crash. He had completely rebuilt a Miata sports car and enjoyed driving it at various events, but had skidded and flipped the car. And he had all the latest safety equipment, and at first he thought, other than a few bruises, he had escaped serious harm. But a subsequent visit to the Penn State Hershey Hospital revealed that Tom had a serious C5 spinal column injury that left him completely paralyzed from the shoulders down. After two major surgeries, the first for seven hours, the second for three, 
uh, Tom is slowly recovering. He's regained some movement in his arms and legs, and now his fingers and his hands. He no longer needs help breathing. Initially, he was on a ventilator. But his life and our lives are forever changed. His wife, Sarah, is a gifted medical doctor and describes herself as a pragmatic optimist and is not easily overwhelmed. But she told us that many nights she still wakes up at home alone and wonders if it's all a bad dream. But then she discovers, no, this is life. And she knows, as do the rest of her family, they have three married daughters, including the one who went here, and four grandchildren. But they're heading into life challenges that do seem overwhelming. So we get it. Now, although her crisis was of a very different proportion and at a very different time, I suspect that the unnamed widow from Zarephath was also overwhelmed by the challenges of life. We heard about her in our Old Testament lesson, and even though we don't know her name, she is famous because her story was an example in the first sermon that Jesus preached at the synagogue in Nazareth. Let me remind you of her story. Israel was in crisis. King Ahab was on the throne, and he did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him, and that says quite a lot. Ahab was totally immoral, and he led the nation in pagan practices that did more to provoke the Lord to anger than did all the kings of Israel before him. He was very bad news. As a result, God permitted a disastrous drought in the land, and people were starving. And then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the prophet, Go at once to Zarephath of Sidon and stay there. And I have commanded a widow in that place to supply you with food. And so he went to Zarephath. When he came to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks, firewood. And he called to her and asked, Would you bring me a little water in a jar that I may have a drink? And as she was going to get it, he called, And bring me, please, a piece of bread. This is a highly unusual conversation in ancient Israel. See, widows had no inheritance rights and were utterly dependent on other family members or charity for survival. The prophets would often criticize those who took advantages of widows. And yet here we have Elijah asking this desperately poor woman for food. As surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread. Only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. I was gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. Now she may, to your ear, sound a little melodramatic, but starvation was a very present reality for her. And it's hard to imagine the agony of watching your own child die of starvation. Elijah said to her, don't be afraid. Go home and do as you have said. But first, make a small cake of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me. And then make something for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. The jar of flour will not be used up and the jug of oil will not run dry 
until the, the day the Lord gives rain on the land. Now, I'm not sure how you would have responded to Elijah's request, but I suspect some of you might have said, go find another fool. <laughs> Instead, she proved to be a woman of remarkable faith. She went away and did as Elijah had told her. And guess what? There was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and her family. For the jar of flour was not used up and the jug of oil did not run dry in keeping with the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. So there it was, food every day for the woman, her son, and Elijah. The flour and oil never ran out until the drought came to an end. That was quite a miracle. God had made a way where there was no way. Now, I'm sure that you have all heard of other modern-day examples of God's supernatural provision. We have. Angela and I have seen God provide for our own family in many ways, sometimes very big, sometimes very small, but all remarkable. We still talk about a very small example of this during our time at Virginia Seminary more than 40 years ago. It had been a hectic summer. I had spent most of it completing my clinical pastoral education, what they call CPE requirement, and there had been very little time for the family. We had four children, and we decided to have a three-day weekend at the beach, Virginia Beach. Now, don't turn your noses up. It's not that bad. Uh, now, money was tight, and I had carefully budgeted everything, but the last night I blew it. I thought the restaurant said specials tonight, half-price specials, but I got the wrong day. The bill was double what I expected, and we were completely out of cash. And this is before we could afford credit cards. You know what I mean. We had absolutely nothing for the next day. Nothing for lunch, nothing for dinner. And I mean nothing. We had four children, and we all sat on the beach getting hungrier and grumpier by the hour. I knew we wouldn't starve. You know, I realized that. But it finally got to me when our daughter Catherine, who never complained, and she was about this wide, said, Daddy, I'm hungry. She was miserable. I was miserable. We were all miserable. And then I noticed a woman sitting on the beach a little way down from us. We had talked briefly the day before. She was a brand new Christian, full of the joy of the Lord, the last person I wanted to see. <laughs> You know what I mean. <laughs> she came over to us and announced with great enthusiasm that God has spoken to her that morning. And I tried to be enthusiastic. This is before I got ordained, when I have to do it, okay? Uh, but I was thinking, yeah, what did God say to you? Almost as if she had read my mind, she said, God told me to give you $15. Now she had my attention. <laughs> How could she have known? We didn't have a sign saying no food, no money. God really had spoken to her. And all I know was that McDonald's never tasted so good in, in those $15. Got you a long way. Now, I admit that's a very tiny miracle. But it's one that our family has never forgotten. Through that experience, and many like it, we have discovered that even when life is too much and the problems seem overwhelming, 
God is able to make a way as we give of ourselves and trust in him. Today is the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. It's a day when we remember that to pray for over 200 million suffering believers around the world. Now that really is overwhelming. As we gather in the comfort and beauty of this delightful sanctuary, it's hard to believe that there are millions of men and women and children who will be persecuted for their faith, and some will be killed if they came to a place like this to worship. Some years ago, I came to know a number of those clergy and bishops and their families in various parts of Nigeria that often face deadly persecution. On one occasion, we were visiting Josiah Edwaferon, who was the bishop of Kaduna in the northern part of Nigeria. He now serves in London as Secretary General of the Anglican Communion. He invited me to a meeting of the local Kaduna clergy who were struggling with knowing how to respond to a recent atrocity. An armed gang had invaded the home of a local pastor, a good friend of theirs. The gang had demanded that he renounce his Christian faith or they would kill his family in front of him. He refused, and they did as they had threatened. He was tied in a chair, forced to watch and listen as his wife and children were slaughtered in front of him. And then he was murdered. The local clergy were incensed. Some wanted weapons to defend themselves and their families. Others said, no, no, we can't do that. For the sake of the gospel, that we must never retaliate. I was sitting there, and they turned to me and said, well, what should we do? I found myself utterly speechless. I didn't know what to say except to assure them of my prayers in the midst of their nightmare. And I left humbled by their faithfulness. And many are still fighting that fight today. It's surely no coincidence that today's epistle was written to a group of first century Christians in very similar circumstances. Times were hard for Hebrew Christians. Many of them had been exposed to fierce persecution. They'd been physically assaulted, their homes had been ransacked, some had been thrown into prison on account of their faith in Jesus. And many of these Jewish Christians were hated by everybody. And they accepted all this trouble joyfully. Others had pulled back from their earlier allegiance to Christ and had renounced their faith. Without going that far, others were in danger of fatal compromise. Now what do you say? to people in critical and adverse times. How do you encourage them? The writer to the Hebrews urges them to hold on and to endure, but he also gives them some advice that enables them to rise above their difficulties. He challenges them to turn their attention to Christ and to simply focus upon Him and not just themselves and all their difficulties. It's a good counsel because... When we begin to turn our eyes upon Jesus, our problems do take on a different perspective. Now, I'm sure you all know that chorus, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. And it's true. 
when we have our focus upon him, these other things do seem to take a different place. And the writer to the Hebrews points out that Christ is unique among all religious figures. Unlike the high priest who performed an annual pilgrimage to make sacrifices in the Holy of Holies, Jesus appeared once for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as man is destined once and after that to face judgment, to die once and then face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of all. There is no one else like him. He's unique. Whatever situation we encounter, whatever crisis erupts, whatever it is that threatens to overwhelm us, one thing we know is that Jesus is able to make a way through. He took the very worst that the world could do. All of the evil and cruelty and violence and death that you can imagine. And he overcame it once and for all. And he didn't just do it for himself, but for every person who is willing to turn to him in faith and take him at his word. And that's why you know, the resurrection is such an important event, because whenever it feels like the darkness and despair of Good Friday threaten to consume us, remember Sunday's coming, and Easter's around the corner. It always is. See, nothing can separate us from his love. As the Apostle Paul reminds us in his letter to the Romans, neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. 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 Much better. It's true. It really is true. Jesus truly is one of a kind and he makes all of the difference. But there is something that we can do. And that takes me finally to our gospel lesson. It's a familiar text. Jesus was teaching in the temple courts. He was a popular preacher, and crowds enjoyed listening to him. It was also the place where the scribes and Pharisees would walk around trying to attract attention by their robes and piety. Whenever I read this text, I always get slightly nervous <laughs> about that chair about these robes just slightly nervous watch out for the teachers of the law the way they walk around in flowing robes and be greeted in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at the banquets they devour widows houses and for a show make lengthy prayers such men we punish severely see jesus doesn't pull any punches the religious leaders of his day were more concerned with their own power and prestige than with the mission to which they had been called. And it's something that we all need to watch. Now yesterday I was blessed to see many of the leaders of this diocese, including Monique and Ethan at our convention celebration. It's great to see everyone face to face for a change. Zoom doesn't quite do it, so it was good to see you everyone. And I was so blessed by the, the sense of that gathering instead of looking back at what might have been and looking in taking care of all our internal concerns we emphasize looking out at the opportunities before us today because i'm convinced that this is one of the most exciting times in the life of the church people are hungry for the things of god the pandemic has reminded all of us that we cannot manage or control our own lives and our own world people are helpless and that's a frightening thing to be. People are anxious 
And they're asking important questions, and we have the answers. There are more opportunities for mission than ever before, both here and around the world. And we dare not look inward and look upon ourselves. Jesus is waiting and watching to see how we respond. Now Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd put their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, I'm sure with the great fairs, and they used to have trumpeters to you know, let people know, look at me, look at me. But a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a fraction of a cent or a penny. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They gave out of their wealth, but she out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. Isn't it delightful that here we have another famous widow whose example has inspired millions? Again, we don't know her name, but we still tell her story. And it wasn't the amount of money that she gave, but her attitude in giving. She gave all that she had, expecting nothing in return, and God was able to use it to work miracles. That's the way God works. And here we have the answer to the question that I raised at first. What do you do when you feel overwhelmed? Where do we go when life seems to be too much? Let me suggest three things. First of all, remember that God is able. Would you say that with me? God is able. One more time. God is able. Whenever you struggle, whenever it seems like things are getting way too much, just say that to yourself. Because nothing, nothing, absolutely nothing is impossible for him. Second, turn your eyes upon Jesus. He is the Savior of the world. He alone has made it possible for us to experience a new beginning and a new hope. And finally, do what we can. Give what we're able. And God will do a miracle. That's the way that God works. See, God knows that life is too much for us. God knows that the crises in the church and around the world are beyond us. God doesn't ask us to fix all the problems of the world, but to do what we can, to give what we have, whether it's two small copper coins or five loaves and two small fish or five talents or those six water jars at the wedding of Cana. God is able to take what we offer and do miracles. God is able to feed the hungry, to forgive our sins. God is able to make a way where there is no way. God is able to hear the prayers of the widows and the orphans. God is able to do abundantly more than we can ask or imagine. And don't you ever forget it. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you and I bless you for your word, for the confidence it gives us even when we face overwhelming times. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. They took your life. They couldn't.